It was just about a year ago that ChatGPT officially launched. Seems like maybe it's been more than a year, but it was just last November 30th of 2022, and it took artificial intelligence, which had been brewing for decades, and made it accessible in a new way to regular people. And many of our headlines in 2023 have been dominated by all sorts of stories about AI and how it's changing the world. One of my favorite ones came from June, where a New York attorney used ChatGPT to help build the case for his client before he went to court. Now, part of a good legal argument is citing prior cases, prior precedent, that have been you know, relevant to the particular case and bringing them to bear and showing the judge how this particular case is supported by, by prior cases. But what's normally a good practice is where this case went terribly wrong. You see, what happened was, although the attorney didn't realize it, ChatGPT created fake court cases that would be supportive of his client's case. And without realizing it, these attorneys took the case to the judge and presented them as if they were authoritative and factual. It's safe to say he was not too pleased and gave them a pretty strong tongue lashing along with a hefty fine, and they left the courtroom sheepishly with their tails between their legs, uh, embarrassed at their own mistake. It turns out AI raises a whole bunch of questions that maybe we didn't anticipate, right? Things that we didn't even realize. Their claim was they said, we didn't know that ChatGPT could create fake cases, we thought it was just having access to a, a, a record bank that we were not aware of. You know, a lot of times when it comes to artificial intelligence, there are a group of people that want to know how it works, right? What's the science? How's this work under the hood? And other people just want to know, well, what does this mean for my job? How is this going to change this aspect? Other people want to know how their kids, how their grandkids can be instructed in artificial intelligence and how to use it. Maybe some of you are wondering how much of this introduction was written by artificial intelligence. <laughs> I kid. Whatever the case, I think the most urgent question that we might think about from artificial intelligence and chat GPT, what we're all sort of wondering is, how is this actually going to change my life? Right? There's, there are things that we can have theories about and we can wonder about, but at the end of the day, most people are wondering, what is this actually doing to change my life today and this month and this year? And you might laugh at a pastor saying this, but I think that in a small way, Christmas is a little bit like artificial intelligence. It, it, here's what I mean. The basic question we ought to be asking at Christmas is very similar to the basic question of chat GPT and AI. How does this actually change my life? Or when it comes to Christmas, some people want to know how it works under the hood. How could God actually become a man? 100% God, 100% man, how does all that business work? Some people are really concerned that their kids and grandkids know about Christmas. But all of us ought to be asking, how does Christmas actually change my life today? And so this Christmas Eve, what I want to do is suggest two ways that Christmas should change and transform your life. Two transformations, you might say. And in the first point, what I'll do is I'll suggest a way that Christmas has already changed your life. And the second point, I'll suggest a way that Christmas should change your life. Let's look at the first one then. First point, one way that Christmas has already changed your life. Christmas has transformed how we think. Christmas has transformed how we think. 
Let me go back to John 1.14 that Austin read a moment ago. Let me read it again. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When that verse says that the Word became flesh, what it means is that God became a man, that he literally walked the earth. And this might be something that we get used to hearing about in church or around Christmas season, but it's really a marvelous and remarkable thing to think about. Yes, God became a baby, but as he grew, the God of the universe was hungry. He had B.O. He got tired. He had bad hair days. God became a man. And in his life, it's more than just merely affirming the humanity. We see Jesus embodying radically countercultural ideas that have now become totally mainstream. And there are certain Christian ideas that Jesus brought to bear that now seem totally normal to us, totally pervasive in our culture, and they've become so normalized that we even forget sometimes they're Christian ideas. And so my premise in this first point this morning is that whether you profess Christian faith or not, your thinking has already been shaped in radical, profound ways by the reality of Christmas, that God became a man, that the Word became flesh, and that he dwelt among us. Maybe you hear that's a pretty big claim, and you say, Justin, I thought we lived in a post-Christian world. How could, how could that be? We've moved on from that. And it kind of depends on how you ask the question, but I might suggest to say post-Christian world is like being in a post-industrial world. If you just track with me for a second, in a post-industrial world, the industrial revolution, you see all sorts of uses for steel and iron being developed in mass production and things being used. Now, we are today in a post-industrial world, but if we actually set aside the steel and the iron and all the things that came about in the industrial revolution, no, we're building on their foundation. And there's all sorts of things enabled because of that foundation. And in a similar way, I do think it's right to say we live in a post-Christian age where there's a foundation, a moral grid, a way of thinking that's established by Christianity, and we're building on that. And a lot of the ways we think today are driven by this Christian era. And so in a post-Christian world, what we ought to think then is there are certain values that are foundational. These are values that we don't find really normalized throughout history, and certainly values that we don't find in nature. Values like kindness and equality and freedom. And in the modern West, what often happens is people cite these values as reasons they aren't Christians or can't be Christians. You see signs like this one. People say, in this house, we believe that black lives matter, that women's rights are human rights, that no human is illegal, science is real, love is love, and kindness is everything. People say that and the values to our broader culture seem so normalized. But my thesis this morning is that many of these values, or the values that undergird them, are not normal throughout history. In fact, they're distinctively Christian values. So let me look at just two of them briefly with you. Start with the value, number one, of equality. Value of equality. Now, equality is the shared value that undergirds these desires to end racism, to fight for LGBTQ rights, to seek immigration reform, all kinds of common issues. 
And what I'm not saying this morning is that the Bible endorses same-sex marriage or everything that the organization of BLM advocates for. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that the undergirding value of equality comes straight from the Bible and nowhere else. I'm saying that equality is not a secular virtue or value. In fact, most of human history denies this value. You could look back to the surf system in the Middle Ages, certainly is not affirming the equality of all human beings. You can look at the caste system in India, certainly not affirming the equality of all human beings. You could look at the Holocaust or recent attacks by Hamas. You could look at ancient philosophers like Plato, who famously said the following, justice, catch that, justice, not just the way nature is, but, the, but justice itself consists in the superior ruling over and having more than the inferior. There are superior humans and there are inferior humans, and that they know their place is where you actually find justice, says one of the greatest philosophers of all time. Or George Orwell famously saying in Animal Farm that we love to cite equality but not really believe in equality, he says all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. Or more recently, just a couple of years ago, a former Supreme Court justice in the UK, Lord Sumption, simply said it baldly in this way, I don't accept that all lives are of equal value. And with this backdrop across various cultures and various time periods, the word becomes flesh and dwells among us, and Jesus shows up, and he doesn't show favoritism to anyone but he radically teaches and embodies the equality of all human beings. He takes the truth of Genesis 1, verse 27, and lives it out. Here's what Genesis 1, 27 says. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In other words, what that means is that every human being is made in the image of God, bears the image of God, and therefore has equal value and dignity and is deserving of honor. Jesus came and hung out with hated classes of people and supposedly second-class citizens. He spent time with the hated, corrupt government officials. He spent time with second-class citizens like adulterous women and lepers that were kicked out of society. In other words, those whom society had pushed aside for social reasons or for moral reasons or for medical reasons, Jesus looks at them and says, you bear the image of God and I will treat you with equality. He still calls them to turn from sin, repent of sin, and follow him. There's no doubt about that. But he also says you are equal and should be treated with dignity. So then, if you're here this morning and you believe that all people are each equal, all people should be treated with dignity and equality, then you're living out a distinctively Christian virtue, whether or not you affirm Jesus as the Messiah, the true Son of God. Let me look at one of the second values, the second value of compassion. Compassion is the value that undergirds that final statement on the yard sign, kindness is everything. It's the value that undergirds your thinking. When you see another human being who's suffering, or you might say another human being who's oppressed, and you think, man, I have an obligation to help out, you're embodying this value of compassion. And like equality, I want to suggest that compassion is not at all normal in the course of human history, and certainly not in nature if we were to look out at just the natural world. 
Go back to the ancient philosophers, Aristotle, who wrote arguably the greatest ethics textbook of all time. Nicomachean Ethics said the following. He said this, as to exposing or rearing the children born, let there be a law that no deformed child shall be reared. He says this is the ethical way to proceed. We should not have compassion on those born with physical difficulties. We should actually allow them to die. Or you zoom ahead a couple hundred years, maybe a couple thousand years to Friedrich Nietzsche, Again, speaking that compassion is a bad thing, the German philosopher, he says this, pity, on the whole, thwarts the law of evolution. The weak and ill-constituted shall perish, and one shall help them to do so. Certainly no advocate of compassion there. Or you could bring it closer to home, and I've talked about this uh, in a sermon or two previously, but even our own state of Indiana in the early 1900s had forced sterilizations for the mentally unstable and those who were poor. The law actually used the term pauperism, to be a pauper, and says that it's a hereditary gene, and so those people should be sterilized against their will. The point then being that compassion isn't normal. Whether you look at the ancients, whether you look at the Europeans from centuries ago, or right here in Indiana. And certainly if you look out into the natural world, you're not going to find compassion being embodied. You see a lion out in the wild, he's not going to look out and have compassion on a weaker animal. He's going to say, no, there's lunch. Right? This idea of compassion is not normal. And certainly lack of compassion would be consistent with the Darwinian view, right? The survival of the fittest for the gene pool to improve. We should not have compassion on the weak. We should push them to the side. So then why is it that if we look all throughout history, compassion is not a normal virtue? Why is it that we now think compassion is good? Why do we think now that the powerful should defend the oppressed? Why is that? precisely because that's what Jesus taught and embodied when the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory, glory as of the only father through his, through his son. And so if you believe that compassion for the weak is a good thing, again, whether or not you affirm Christian faith, you're living out a distinctively Christian value. Jesus shows up on the scene in Mark 2. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came for those who are sick, he says. Matthew 9, he goes on, he sees crowds all around, and he says this, he has compassion, for they were harassed and helpless. They didn't know where to go. They weren't going to find their way, and Jesus says, I have compassion on you. Of course, Jesus' compassion is not merely towards physical needs. No, his greatest mission was coming, seeing people in spiritual need with no way of helping themselves and laying his life down to die the death that sinners deserved, so that if they would trust in him for the forgiveness of sins, they could have a home in heaven and be adopted as one of God's children. Romans 5.8 says it so clearly, and it's on the screen. He says simply this, God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His compassion on his enemies, those rebelling against him, he died for you. You might say that Jesus, the fittest, laid down his life for us, the weakest. Where Darwinism says survival of the fittest by the sacrifice of the weakest, Christianity says survival of the weakest, namely us, by the sacrifice of the fittest, namely Jesus. 
You see, friends, you must understand the message of Christmas is that Jesus came so that you could be forgiven of sin, adopted into God's family, and assured of a home in heaven. And if you aren't a Christian, but you do believe in equality and compassion, it's key that you know that these are Christian values, not ones that flow out of secularism. And maybe you never thought about it this way, and maybe it's not the kind of message you thought you would hear on Christmas Eve. But if you think these values are attractive, then I would simply urge you to give serious consideration to the whole of Christianity, not just the values that seem attractive to you right now. I'd love to find a time that we could sit down and talk later this week or into the coming weeks, coming year, uh, and discuss these things at greater length if you have questions. Please stop by afterwards. Let's chat. But if you are a Christian here, you've been thinking about these things, I want you to recognize that social activism has long been a part of Christian practice because these beliefs are deeply Christian beliefs. You might think about your own personal encounters with those who are less fortunate than you, how you demonstrate equality and compassion to them. Certainly as a church, this informs how we try to minister to our community and the needs around us. Even as we come into an election year, it's important we consider these things and how we vote to live out these Christian values and virtues that Jesus embodied and taught about. And when we see these values of Jesus lived out in our world, that's where we see the title of this sermon, Renewal Through Christ. People come to him for their spiritual needs, and a whole transformation takes place afterwards. So the first point, Christianity has already transformed how you think. It brings us then to our second point, Christmas must transform what we seek. Yes, it has transformed how you think, but it must also transform what we seek. Our world sends a very clear message of what to seek. It's generally more, something bigger, a move upward. There's all sorts of ways you could think about this, right? Our world is telling us, here's what you ought to seek. A bigger paycheck or bigger muscles. More YouTube subscribers, more square footage in your home, more zeros in your 401k. Better friends, a better marriage, maybe finding a spouse at all. That's when you'll be happy. That's what you should be seeking. More, bigger, better. And certainly, none of those things are inherently bad in their own right, but none of them should be sought as the most important thing either. And the advertisements tell us that these things will make us happy. And although we deep down know that it's not entirely true, we do believe them and pursue those things. And basically what happens is we take these things and establish them as functional gods. If I could just have that relationship, that job, that bank account, that home, you name it, whatever the thing is, That becomes our functional God. And we tell ourselves that once we have that, we'll live in a functional heaven where everything will be bliss. And some of you are kind of shaking your heads like, yeah, I've been down that road. I know it's not true. But deep in our soul, we still kind of want to think it's that way. If I could just have it that way. What happens is Jesus comes at Christmas and he says, no, I want to flip that upside down. More isn't the answer. The answer isn't found in this world. The answer comes from another world from God who would enter into our world as the answer. And the more you cling to this world and what this world has to offer, the emptier and more frustrated and discouraged you'll become. Here's how Jesus says it in Matthew 16, 25. He simply says it this way. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, then you will save it. Or as Tim Keller has said, 
The world can't save itself. That's the message of Christmas. The world can't save itself. That's the message of Christmas. A couple weeks ago, I was reading memoirs of Matthew Perry. If you're not familiar with Matthew Perry, he's the actor from the hit show Friends that played Chandler. And he's, he's talking about his life on Friends and how everything was going great. There was a point in the early 90s or maybe mid-90s where he's making more than a million dollars a week. And he's got this unbelievable L.A. house mansion overlooking the ocean. He's dating Julia Roberts. Feels like everything has gone right. And yet he talks about in the book this just aching he has where it's not really satisfying. I and mean, he says, I have everything I want. And yet it's not happening the way I thought it would. Here's in his own words, the striking phrase he uses. He says simply this, I'm constantly filled with a lurking loneliness, a yearning, clinging to the notion that something outside of me will fix me. But I had all that the outside had to offer. All of those things, Julia and the dream house and the million dollars a week were wonderful. And I'll be eternally grateful for all of them. I am one of the luckiest men on the planet. And boy, did I have fun. They just weren't the answer. You know, sadly, we have no record of Matthew Perry ever finding the true answer in Jesus. But his philosophy of life that he tried to live out is pretty similar to what most religions and most philosophies of life tend to say. Work to achieve the good life, however you define it, and you'll live in your own functional heaven. And it's as if he's reporting back to us saying, nope, Nope, I was wrong. It's fun for a while, but it doesn't actually work. It's not the answer. And so almost every human system is viewing God, in a sense, like a mountain. And there's many paths to the top. And you might choose a religious path to God and try the, the five pillars of Islam or the eight steps to enlightenment that Buddha advocated for or Judaism's Ten Commandments and keep the rules, and, and maybe that will get me to the top. Or maybe you choose an irreligious system, like the fame of starring on Friends. And if I make it all the way up there, I'll make it to God. Or maybe we choose something a little more modest and just say if I can have a loving family and kids that want to come home at Christmas and grandkids that cling to me, that will make the functional heaven that I long for so much and then I will know what it's like to be on top and I'll have it. But in all of them, the focal point is you, your persistence, your skill, your iron will, you keep on going, that you be true to yourself and your own desires and you don't turn away from those. Christmas tells a radically different story. Christmas's story of what we seek is not that we work our way to the top, but rather God himself comes down to us. Christmas says the answer doesn't come from this world. No, the true answer comes from beyond this world. And we'd never find it on our own, so God came to us. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. There's an old Egyptian theologian named Athanasius who simply said it this way, the son of God became a man so that we might become sons of God. The son of God became a man so that we might become sons of God. And what happens to all of us at one point in time or another? It might happen when you're 25, and it might happen when you're 75, as you come to the end of your rope and you realize that the things you've been pursuing aren't going to cut it. 
And maybe you get the dreams you've always wanted, like Matthew Perry, and realize that they don't actually do all that much for you. Or maybe you strive and strive and strive and you can't seem to get anywhere. And all you can run into is the brokenness of this world. And you run into bad boss after bad boss. Or year after year after year of infertility. Or the ongoing loss of your health. Or the pain of a marriage gone awry. And all you see is deep sadness all around And we're forced to ask ourselves, what happens when I run into the brick wall of a very broken world? Where no matter how hard I try, the things I'm seeking, I can't get. And I'm stuck. And you've got a choice. You can drift into self-loathing, hating yourself, of despair at the hopelessness of the world, Or you can turn to the true meaning of Christmas, that hope is found somewhere entirely else, and Christmas must change what you seek. In other words, you might say it this way, you're no longer seeking something, but rather someone. You're seeking Jesus, that God became a man, the word become flesh. He came down. He came down low. He made himself humble, coming as a baby in a manger. So that if you will simply say, Jesus, I can't do this on my own. I need your help. Just as he came as a dependent baby, you yourself confess your dependence on him. Jesus, I need you. I've sinned against you. I've turned away from you. I've tried to do things my way instead of your way. He's saying, I came down, not merely as a baby, but to grow into a man and live the perfect life that you didn't and die a gruesome death on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins so that you might be forgiven. That's the message of Christmas. It changes what you seek. Not just how you think, but also how you think. And everything in our world is telling us, perform more, perform better, achieve higher. And Jesus comes and flips it around and says, no, 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 I've done the achieving. Trust in me. Trusting is better than trying to earn your way to God. Maybe you think of it this way as we start to wrap it up. I'm reminded of Lin-Manuel Miranda's musical Hamilton. Of course, Alexander Hamilton dies and his wife Eliza goes on and she works her whole life to honor his legacy. And near the end of the show, at the end of her life, it's been 50 years of seeking to honor his legacy. There's the song, Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Tells Your Story. And she's recounting all the ways that she sought to honor her husband's legacy. Talks about how she started a school, how she campaigned against slavery, how she did just relentless fundraising for public works, how she established an orphanage and cared for hundreds of kids along the way. And you get to the end of the song, and she asks this startling question. She says, but have I done enough? But have I done enough? She asks a second time. It's a rather haunting question. Most of the time we want to chase from our memory, but in quiet, lonely moments, the question does float in, have I done enough? Because we're all seeking to work hard enough to prove that we have done enough, that we are worth something, that we've made a meaningful contribution, 
And the message of Christmas comes and says, you're asking the wrong question. You ought not be asking, have I done enough? But am I looking to the one who did enough, who did it all? Christmas must change what you think. Friends, we started talking about chat GPT and artificial intelligence. We said that we asked similar questions, both of AI and of Christmas. We ask, how does this change my life? And the message this morning is that Christmas has already changed what you think and how you think. And it should change what you seek. And if you'll turn to Christ this morning and seek him instead of what this world has to offer, asking for the forgiveness of sin and new life in him and hope and joy that go beyond your circumstances, whether good or bad, there is immense joy, immense hope that can be yours this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you so grateful this morning that you, the Son of God, would come down low. The word would become flesh. You would dwell among us. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around, hard for us to grasp, hard for us to grasp the entirety of it. But we can see with just a, a little bit of understanding the ways you've already changed all the world and the ways that you are changing each of our lives. And so we ask this morning that you would change us in the image of you. Help us to be more like you. Help us to see our need for you, the emptiness of this world and the fullness of all that you are. We pray this Christmas that even some here today who don't yet know you as Savior would see that they are seeking the wrong things would cry out to you for forgiveness. And you would do a mighty work in their lives. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.